So whenever we go on road trips, there's a question that usually comes up, especially if you're traveling with new people. How many states have you been to? So kind of guess in your mind now and chat with your neighbor. How many states have you been to in the United States? You know, there's 50 of them. So how many of the 50? Kind of guess in your mind and chat with your neighbor real quick and see if you can come up with a number. Has, it, has anyone been to all 50 states before? I need the answer there. Anyone in the 40s, you think, in the 40s? 30s, maybe? Anyone never left the state of Texas before? That's, and that's okay. Question, how many countries are in the world right now? I just found it on the internet machine, and the internet machine never lies. So uh, how many countries are in the world right now? Internet tells me 196. 196. Our guest speaker today has been to 118 countries. He has. Uh, he grew up in. He was born in Canada. He grew up in uh, Scotland, and he moved to the United States when he was 15 years old. He's been educated at places like Eastern Nazarene College or University. Yes, in uh, up there in the Northeast. Uh, he's also gone to school at Seminary, at Nazarene Seminary, and other seminaries in a little place called Harvard. And uh, he's taught at various places in seminary, and uh, he has a heart uh, for missions. Uh, not only missions around the globe, as reflected in the 118 places that he's preached and taught, but in the fact that he has been a missiologist here in the United States as well. And uh, a couple of uh, years ago, the Church of the Nazarene came up with a curriculum called a Living Mission and talked about how we need to be a living mission. Uh, Dr. Tink has been a living mission, uh, and he's done that here, there, and everywhere. And it's our privilege to hear about, a little bit about his journey and uh, to hear about what God's doing around the globe. Would you welcome Dr. Tink with us? What country am I in? <laughs> Actually, uh, last month I was in Vietnam. The month before I was in Bangladesh. Earlier this year I was in the Philippines and in Nepal. Next week, Thursday, I'll be in the Philippines again. And then next month I'll be in Brunei. For some reason, people don't want me to stay with them. They <laughs> send me on. Good riddance, they say. <laughs> but it is a pleasure to be here. Actually, the last time I was here was just a year ago when I, I've got an adopted Filipina daughter. And she was married here in Houston. And I did the strange thing of not only walking her down the aisle, but having to turn around and said, officiate at the wedding. So what do you do? Who gives this woman to be I do. <laughs> and next week she'll have her first child in Los Angeles. But uh, God has protected me in all kinds of amazing ways, and I've had the opportunity to do things in rather non-conventional ways. Yeah, there was a time in which I was conventional Nazarene missionary in Bolivia. And so this afternoon I'll be preaching in Spanish. I served in Peace Corps in Brazil, so I'll be talking to your pastor in Portuguese. Amen. And <laughs> você fala português? Uh -huh. Então, que bom. 
What a pleasure to be in an international church where you've got people from all kinds of backgrounds. Uh, I talked in Sunday school class about my time in Nepal when I was there during the earthquake, preaching on a Saturday morning up in the fourth floor when the great earthquake hit. And uh, you can talk to some of your fellow uh, worshipers here about uh, the slides and the experiences that I had there. But one of the things that I learned, Alma, by the way, was my student at Nazarene Theological Seminary, and I'm honored that she actually would want me to uh, come and do this with you because, you know, sometimes you don't want to see your professors again. <laughs> when I'm in Nepal, I walk around and I collect trash. This is good trash. I was walking around picking up the trash on the street when uh, a shopkeeper came out. And he said, oh, excuse me, excuse me, I'll take the trash from you, I'll put it in the... No, 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 this trash is very valuable. What do you mean valuable? And I said, well, because you've got a community of very poor Nepalese women who take the trash and they make things like this out of it. They make purses. They make backpacks. They use tires and make all kinds of things out of tires. The whole store full, and they supplement their income by this. I show this to you for two reasons. Number one, because when I am talking to people around the world, I talk about the fact that Christian theology says that in our sinfulness we are worth nothing, we are trash. But the gospel says we are worth everything and turns around and in the hands of Jesus makes something valuable. Beauty for ashes is what the Bible says. When I talk about uh, economics, business ethics, I talk about value added. God gives value added to all of us. And my friends in various parts of the world can understand that because we have a gospel that recycles us into value. I want you to take your uh, seatbelts, put on your seatbelts, please. Put up the tray. Make sure the, uh, your seats are inclined properly because we're going to take off and head in the direction of Pakistan. I could present slides to you for a number of different countries, but I feel like I want to introduce you to this very troubled nation called Pakistan. I've been there for the last four years. It was only within the last month that I saw a verse in Scripture that I had never seen before. You came up through the five days of creation. The world is proliferating with vegetation, with animals, and then God, after that fifth day, folds his arms and he looks at it and he says, this is good. But there was a crying ache in his soul. What he said was, there is no one to till the ground. No one to till the ground. My mission in some of these places is not to do evangelism. My mission is to do pre-evangelism. 
I'm not there long enough just to kind of stand in front of people and the laws don't permit me just to say, come on, receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus' film can do that. But that is not how I can get into these countries. I do pre-evangelism among Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Baha'i, many other different kinds of faiths. And so when, this, when I read this verse, this said, Aha, there was no one to till the land. But maybe that's my mission. Some people water. Some people uh, fertilize. Some people actually pick and harvest. But it is my duty to till the land. You understand? Because the most of the people that I teach and talk to have no conception of what Christianity is. And what I do is dig. Soften the ground so that the seeds can be planted along the way. So let me show you, let me take you to uh, this uh, nation of Pakistan. Uh, let's go back. What are the central ideas I get out of this verse? Number one, God created human beings to complete his creation. There are two mandates. We tend as evangelicals to focus on the redemption mandate to bring people to Jesus Christ, to go out into all the world, teaching, baptizing, and so forth. But there is a much earlier mandate, and this is what I focus on in my classes. It's called the creation mandate. It's what's talked to us in Genesis 1 and 2. It predates the redemptive mandate. It's the mandate in the Garden of Eden. And 90% of you are living in worlds where you have a responsibility to be transformational agents in those worlds following the creation mandate. Humans have a job resume to till the land. And one of the courses that I teach and I get subsidized for is called Theology of Work. And there are four parts to the creation mandate. One is to proliferate. To make pro-life is in that word. To make things lively again. The abundant life. Our presence should be the abundance of life all around us. The second thing is to take care of what God has given to us in our talents, in our abilities, and in the nature of the stewardship that God has given to us. We are to care for those things that come under our responsibility. The third thing is to create culture that comes out of the word. It's not good for man to be alone. God himself is community. Let us make man in our own image. It doesn't say let me make man in my own image. Let us. God is community. We're made in the image of God. Therefore, we are built into community. So when the Bible says, uh, let's, uh, when the Bible talks about us being a community, uh, we have the responsibility. We are not to be alone and so there is the mandate to create culture which honors God. The last one is to name the animals. We actually act this out. I have my monkeys that come across. I have my K2 
camels that come across. I have my students act out all of this stuff, and we name them. When you name things, that is the beginning of organizing taxonomies from which we get science. God has given us the ability through science to be able to better the conditions of the world, but so many times science becomes perverted and does damage to people that God gave us the commission to do science. So this is part of the uh, creation mandate. So we till the land, we plant, we nurture, and we harvest. Next. Uh, this is a map that shows some of the area that most recently I've been involved in. Pakistan up in the left the last four years. India, I've been doing this over the last 10 years in many different locations in India. I've been teaching the last three years in Nepal. And by the way, you are invited to accompany me for 10 days to Nepal, probably in April. It's a deal, $1,200 plus air flight. And you are my secret service to influence my Hindu students for Jesus Christ. Bangladesh. This was my first experience in Bangladesh. Myanmar. I've taught there twice. Next. This is a shell that I picked up in Mexico. By the way, my shirt is a traditional shirt from Mexico. I actually own a shell that I bought in Tasco that looked like this. Sadly, within the last month, it is broken to pieces. I can't show it to you. But I picked this one up uh, a couple of months ago in Hawaii. This is an abalone shell. And I'm told by those that fish for this that if you want to be a small shell, you remain in shallow waters. If you want to be a deep, big shell, you go into the depths because it is a requirement that you've got to grow because of the pressure of the water that comes down on you. This is one reason why I love to go outside into troubled nations, because I find Christians with a maturity and with a strength and a perspective that oftentimes I don't find among American Christians where being Christian is much too easy. Uh, my friends around the world don't pray that God release them from persecution. They pray that God may give them the strength to survive persecution because they understand that in persecution, that's when the church grows. And so sometimes I think our values are misconstrued when we want to have easy, comfortable Christianity. We remain small. You understand? But uh, the fisherman, he's got a dragnet. And he sends that dragnet along the base of the sea. And he pulls this up, and this is not beautiful at all. It looks like a rock. But it's a rock for its own self-defense, so that the fish don't swallow it up. That's the story of our sinfulness. That is, in a dog-eat-dog world, we learn over time to try to protect ourselves by our own sinfulness, by our own ugliness, by our own worthlessness. But underneath the shell is something extraordinarily beautiful. Even though this comes to the surface in the net and doesn't look attractive whatsoever because all of us in our sins have no value. But praise God, 
in the hands of the fisherman or the missionary, he knows that there's value. The missionary does not convert anybody, but he knows where to turn to deliver this to the sculptor. The sculptor does something that's very uncomfortable for all of us. He forces us to go through a process of chiseling, chopping away the ugliness in our lives. And that's not comfortable at all. Many of you have gone through this process. There are times in which you've wondered, should I stick with it or not? The fact is, it's a necessary process to find the beauty which is underneath all of this. So, I've got some lessons here. It grows larger under greatest pressure in its natural form. It's ugly like a rock. It finds its beauty in the hands of the sculptor and in the hands of Jesus Christ. He tears away the ugliness of our lives. I learned, by the way, from the guy that I bought this from, he said, by the way, in the United States, you'll not find this uh, again being cut away. It's now forbidden. I said, why? He says, the dust particles on this are cancer-causing. And so we don't do it anymore. I thought to myself, aha. The process that God has used to shave off the sin cost Jesus Christ the cancer. You understand? It was a great personal cost unto his death that he shaves us so that we can be again beautiful. The next thing is, let's go back again. The colors are the most brilliant, the closest to the sun. This is shaved off. I put it to the light. And then you begin to see incandescent colors that you will not see from a distance. And the closer you are to the light, the greater the possibility is that people can see the beauty of Christ being reflected in you in all of the colors. There's one other lesson that I get, and that is every shell is unique. I heard the sad story the other day about somebody who was getting uh, themselves sculpted uh, to look like... Kim Kardashian. I thought to myself, what a craziness we have in this world that we try to look like other people. When God has created us, all of us, to be unique, to be special. The designs are all unique for every one of us. We are not copycats of anybody. And so God wants to do a great and glorious thing in our uniqueness, and everybody has a role in this. Next. So there's a complete work of beauty fashioning. God wants to work it in such a way that we're beautiful outside and inside. Next. I've been teaching in Pakistan, preaching in six cities in March 2014. It's a very broken and suffering nation. My mission is to train and encourage the ghettoized Christian populations to till the ground among the Muslims and the Hindus and to build a Nazarene church in Shantinagar. I'll mention this later. Population is 190 million. Pakistan is growing so large that it'll be almost the same size as the United States population-wise by the year 2050. We've got about 87 Nazarene churches in this Muslim nation of Pakistan. Next, here I am being dressed up because they require that my hair is colored black. 
They do not want me to look conspicuously Western. It's dangerous. And so I have a Muslim fellow who's uh, dyeing my hair. And by the way, that's not my cape. (laughs) And the girl is certainly not Pakistani. Okay, next. Here are, uh, there's, there's a Shia Muslim there. The guy standing behind me is a Sunni, and the fellow on the right is a Roman Catholic. Next. Life for many people in Pakistan is very simple. It's a lot better to cook outdoors than indoors because the smoke and the flames can be lethal. And so this is a very simple cooking method. Foods are obviously very different, very similar to the foods of India. It was part of India many years ago. Next. Uh, It's a country which is rich in uh, uh, produce. These are oranges on the street, mangoes, uh, many different kinds of fruit that you would not see in the USA, and vegetables. Next. The women there are some of the most conservative women in the world. You don't dare show your neck. You don't dare show your legs. In fact, men don't show their legs. I was lying in a bed, and the temperature was steaming about 115 degrees, no air conditioning, no fan. And I'd kicked loose the sheet. My host came in and very respectfully covered my legs because you don't show your legs, not even in bed. Uh, The embroidery on the dresses, just fabulously beautiful. They look much more like 1950s Nazarene women than you do. Next. This is a man that uh, comes around and tries to sell you ice cream. This is the ice cream man. Uh, I'm told that I probably ought not to eat some of his ice cream. Uh, What I found interesting was, as he goes around the community, he has a little sound box that keeps playing, it's a small world after all, it's a small world after all, it's until ad nauseum. But it is a small world. Next. These are some of my students. I've got 120 students here. Many of them are Roman Catholic, Uh, some of them are Muslims. The women are on one side, the men are on the other side. Power goes out six or eight times a day, and when you got PowerPoints, this can become a problem. And when the fans no longer work, and when uh, there is no air conditioning, and when they dress up like this under these circumstances, not easy to teach under these circumstances. Next. This is a more liberal community in the city of Multan, city of three million people. You can see there's some mix between the races here, uh, between the genders here. And we've got some Muslims and uh, again, Roman Catholics, some Protestants here. Next. I teach this course, I actually teach two courses. One is called Theology of Work, which basically is all of us are accountable before God who watches us all the time. That's really my message. And we do, and all that we do must honor God. And then when I talk about business ethics, I talk about Christian ethics. I don't name it as such, but business ethics, good business practice, ends up becoming Christian business practice. You understand? And so uh, essentially I'm teaching the fundamentals of Christian theology. 
Next. Musical instruments are very different. We may have eight notes or 13 notes on the piano, black and white keys. They've got lots of stuff in between that makes for some very strange, interesting sounds. Next. Uh, remember that Pakistan was under colonial domination of the British Empire. So they built many Anglican churches. Those Anglican churches are now called Church of Pakistan. This is the bishop of the Church of Pakistan. And uh, so we go visit him. He's very interested in what I'm teaching. I give him some Nazarene literature. I talk about our purposes. Next. And now we have a time of prayer because he too is part of a body that gets persecuted periodically. Next. This is his church. Ironically, the Pakistani army built many of these churches during the colonial period. And now it's the responsibility of the Pakistan army to rehab these churches as national monuments. Next. Uh, I get invited into the mosques. This is the Shia mosques. And there is the imam on the right-hand side. And the appointment is set up. And as I walk towards the mosque, there are two parallel lines of men ready to greet me. And they start throwing things at me. Not grenades, but rose petals as part of their introduction. It's an amazing opportunity of welcome. We go inside, they give me the lay that they put around me, and they welcome me with great hospitality inside the mosque. Next. Then I sit down, and we spend a couple of hours together just answering questions and talking about the nature of the gospel and my impressions of Pakistan and what I'm teaching and so forth, and they very kindly offer me Coca-Cola and potato chips. And then one by one, they ask me to pray for them. They've got a sick relative, or they've got a job opportunity, or they've got this or that, and we have a time of prayer together. Part of my prayer is the same promise that was given to Abraham, who, by the way, is one of their great prophets. That is to bless the nations. I'm not there to curse them. I'm not there to tell them to go to hell. I am there to bless them. You understand? And so we talk, and then I say to them, I want to sing to you in your language. They're very surprised because they speak the Urdu language. And they give me permission. I start to sing. Alleluia, 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 alleluia. Alleluia, 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 alleluia. Well, that's a word that's used in all languages. And so, I don't know what they're hearing. Maybe they're hearing alleluia. Not exactly sure. But here I am in a mosque singing the word that means praise to the Lord. You understand? And then I give them a book. There's kind of a story behind this book. I was asked four years ago to write a chapter on conversation with Muslims. 
I found my Muslims as people sitting on the airplane next to me from Pakistan. I interviewed them. It makes up part of this book. And now being published by the Nazarene Publishing House, I give them a copy of the book, Conversation with Muslims. Next. I get the opportunity of being invited into the minority religion of Hinduism. They too are a persecuted religion. And so their temples are very small. And so this is at nighttime. It's very dark in there. The priest is standing at the back right there in gray. And the professor of Hindu theology for children happens to be in the facility at that time. I'm giving her some flowers. And now I am, uh, just prior to this, as I'm walking on in, they escort me to the altar which is behind. Now, I don't feel comfortable near Hindu altars. They've got all kinds of weird uh, mixes of elephants with long trunks and human beings that look uh, more like animals and so forth. And it's all lit up with neon lights and stuff like this. And they've got my arm and they're walking me on over there to show some kind of respect for the Hindu gods. And I'm praying, oh Lord, oh Lord, I don't want to be misunderstood on this one. As soon as we get there, there's a power failure and all the lights go out. It disappears. And I say, thank you, Lord. Your timing is perfect at this moment. So they turn me away and these pictures are just flash pictures in the dark. And cell phones, everybody in the world now has cell phones. Okay? Next picture. Now I sit down. We're having the same kinds of conversations. They're asking me lots of questions. I'm praying for them. I'm tilling the ground. And then I ask to sing Alleluia. Much to my shock, delight, and surprise, as I start to sing... Next picture. Oh, by the way, I give them the book again. Next picture. All the children jump up. They stand around me. They become my Hindu choir singing Alleluia. And we sing it once. We sing it twice. We sing it through their full-throttled voices, singing with me praise to the Lord. That takes over the whole spirit inside this Hindu temple. Later, the priest said, can you form Christian classes for the children here in this place? We've been able to build latrines for the Hindu temple there. Next. Then uh, this man right in the center is uh, one of my friends. He is the most important Shia priest or imam. And uh, when I visited him four, four years ago, I, uh, he took me around to a dispensary which had some medicines but not much. And I made a promise to him. I said, I would like very much someday to come back and give you some medicines. So this last General Assembly, I ran into Gary Morsh. He's a good friend of mine. I said, Gary, I need some medicines from heart to heart. No problem. He gets on his cell phone. He calls up Kansas City. And yep, they've got them there waiting for you. $10,000 worth of medicines in a big box. And so I pick up the medicines and I head off. I've got to go to the Philippines, Singapore, Sri Lanka, and then Pakistan. I arrive at the customs 
in, uh, Shri, uh, in, in uh, Manila, and they stopped me. Where is your documentation? I don't have any documentation. Who is this for? Well, it's for Muhammad in Pakistan. I don't know what this guy's name is, but I assume it's Muhammad. <laughs> Everybody's called Muhammad. <laughs> he actually has six names. Two of them are Muhammad. But I had no documentation, so they hassled me and hassled me. They're going to confiscate, and I'm praying, and I'm pleading, and I'm saying, hey, look, this is not even for the Philippines. I'm taking it on through. I'm in transit. No, you're actually in the country now. So they open it up and all the medicines fall out and they now start to examine expiration dates on them. Finally, they come up with a billing, $200. That's all I had in my wallet. I paid the $200. I'm now through uh, the Philippines. But I've still got to go to Singapore, Sri Lanka, Pakistan. I don't have monies for this. How much hassle are they going to give me? Fortunately, when I go through Singapore... Not a problem, because my, my baggage is packed, uh, sent all the way through Sri Lanka. Now I'm coming through customs in Sri Lanka. I've got my little trolley. I put the box underneath my suitcase discreetly. I put my bag on top, and I walk on through, you know, confidently, but shaking inside. No problems. They don't stop me. And now come to Pakistan. What am I going to do in Pakistan? And so I start to walk through customs. And I come to the first guy. And the first guy says, I hear a sound in your suitcase. Go on, go on. I think he thought it was a bomb or something. He... Now I come to the second guy. He says, there's a sound inside your suitcase. What, what, what is it? Would you open it up for me? I open it up. I dig around. He's kind of looking at my stuff in there. Finally, I get to my hygiene kit, and I open it up. It's my electric razor. God's timing is perfect. He turned on my electric razor just in that moment. The guy says, go on, go on. I'm through. Remarkable how in your moment of need, how God, with humor, gets you through. And so I was able to get in the country. Here is a big ceremony. Next. This is called the Medicines Handing Over Ceremony. And he has asked me to pray that the use of the medicines may be appropriate and go to the people that need it. Next. Now, the press is there. Uh, it's all being written up. This is $10,000 worth of medicines I'm giving to the Muslims. And uh, so that's the box, ready relief. Next, a group of the people are there waving their appreciation for the gift that I've just given to them. But that's, this opens up doors and credibility. Next, this thing called the iftar party. This is during Ramadan. And by the way, Ramadan in uh, July is a horrible experience because... Sun up is 4.30 in the morning. Sundown is 7.30 at night. You got 15 hours of not eating or drinking anything for 30 days. Now, I admit, the Muslims make up for it because they eat breakfast before 7.30 and then, it, 
before 4.30, and then at 7.30 at nighttime, they have a big formal meal. But I decided I was going to do the Ramadan fast because I was to address all of these iftar parties. The party is the breaking of the fast in the evening. It's done very ceremonially, and it's only done with men. And so uh, I addressed the question of what is the Christian meaning of fasting? They get the opportunity, the imams get the opportunity of talking about fasting, but they don't have any theology. We fast because we always have. We fast because Allah told us to, but he didn't. We fast because Muhammad uh, told us to fast. Well, we don't quite follow those rules either. We fast because it's good for our health. We fast because that's what the culture tells us to do. I stand up and I say, I am also fasting with you, but I fast for very different reasons. You fast to earn your salvation. My salvation is already paid. I don't have to ask for uh, fast to, 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 to earn salvation because my God has sacrificed himself for the purpose of freeing me from my sins. I fast for 10 biblical reasons, and I start naming all the 10 reasons to seek for guidance. By the way, I'm somewhat embarrassed because we Americans do fasting, Christian fasting, very poorly. So I use Koreans as my example. Koreans will fast 40 days and 40 nights. But you Christians don't do much fasting, right? And so that's, that's the context. But I use this as a point of evangelism. Next. Here I am around a table. By the way, I could not eat. And I got fainter and fainter, was losing weight. I lost 25 pounds in 25 days. Uh, I couldn't hold my stomach. There are times in which I felt very, very faint. My hosts were very worried about my health, and I said, I've got to do it for the witness. And God gave me enough strength to go through it, but I was greatly relieved when the fast was over. And by the way, it took about five days in USA to gain the 25 pounds back. <laughs> Next. These are the lawyers at the iftar party, the Muslim lawyers, asking me all kinds of profound questions. And the funny thing is, because they have no theology for fasting, after I've given my 10 reasons, they come running up to me and say, those are good reasons. I think those are the same reasons for us too. Next. Uh, went into some very dangerous communities. They didn't tell me where I was going, but there have been some kidnappings of Westerners. And so uh, secretly, without informing me ahead of time, they made arrangements with the government to give me 16 elite police in a convoy. And here are some of them with their machine guns as I'm meeting with the imams in one of these iftar parties. It was, by the way, the same day that John Kerry was in uh, Islamabad, and he had 16 elite police too, so I felt very important. Next. Oh, an amazing experience. We had time uh, where we invited the uh, uh, top religious leaders in the city of Multan to meet at the Ramada Hotel. 50 showed up. They're of every branch of religious leaders. And here are the Sunnis. This is a tremendously historical moment because 
if you know your politics, the Sunnis are killing the Shias. They consider the Shias the deviant religion. If there's any group they hate more than Christians, it's Shias. And so uh, there's lots of bombings that are going on. And so uh, here are the four Sunni scholars that showed up. Next. There they are. Next. This is half the group. We didn't have chairs for all of them, but they're all sitting, 50 of them on the far end, sharing my witness and my reasons. Next. And now we've got the head of the Shias and the head of the Sunnis standing together. This has not happened before in this community. It really is a breakthrough. Next. I'm uh, sharing with them, praying with them. Next. And then they wanted to have pictures with me. Don't I look very Pakistani there right in the middle? My black hair and my Pakistani outfit. Next. Uh, went to the Nazarene Church in Lahore. I preached here. The men, of course, are on the left. And by the way, many more people came in while I was preaching. The women are on the right. Everybody's sitting on the floor. I, <laughs> I've got a Roman Catholic that's translating for me. I'm very ecumenical, by the way. And as I couldn't stay around afterwards because I had to run over to the much larger Baptist church to preach. Next. It's a place of tremendous suffering. I was supposed to go to Peshawar last year, and they uh, decided maybe I shouldn't go. This was a prayer meeting. And as the Christians were walking out of the prayer meeting, a bomb went off, and these are the bodies of 81 people that were killed. Next. Uh, one night, in the dark of night, I was taken secretly to this man's house. They wouldn't tell me ahead of time why I was going there. What I discovered was that this man had been a member of parliament of a minority party defending the right of minorities, including, and he is a Christian. But the leader of the party was assassinated. So he uh, and his party members quit the, uh, the parliament and they've been working undercover. Uh, he is a lawyer, but he's been working for minority rights, but his life is under threat. There's bounty money placed on his head. And so that's why this was all secret. But what I learned also was, next, is that there was a uh, young girl, perhaps you saw it in the news, 11 years old, who was accused of defacing a Koran. Down syndrome girl. And so she was arrested, and of course, uh, blasphemy laws say that if you say anything against Allah, anything against the Koran, anything against Muhammad, that is worthy of capital punishment. She was arrested. Her family was arrested. 11 years old. This happens again and again. And uh, the, the judge was very fair. He turns around and he says, hey, this is a setup. He releases her from prison and puts the accuser in prison. Well, things outside the prison under these conditions are worse than being inside the prison. By the way, those of you who go to movies, go see the movie on Malala, the young 16-year-old who got 
the Nobel Peace Prize. She's Pakistani, she's a Muslim, but her story is an amazing story of standing up for the rights of children, girls, to go to schools in Pakistan. And it's not just Malala, but there are many young people like this who are standing up for justice in that nation. And they will pay. The judge, by the way, was assassinated because of this. The girl had to go into hiding. Where did she hide? In this man's basement. I couldn't take pictures of the basement. The whole family lived in that basement secretly, even though he's under threat of death. And recently, that family has been smuggled out of the country and is now in hiding in Canada. But nobody's supposed to know that this man was the instrument of her salvation. Uh, his wife is on the left with her little baby. I asked the wife, I said, how can you live with a husband who's so much at risk? Her response was, God called him to do this, and it's God's responsibility to protect him. What courage in the midst of very threatening circumstances. Next. This was a plate that I thought I was going to buy, that I did buy for my wife. I wanted very much to take something beautiful back, and it was, I got it, saw it at the Lahore airport, and it is beautiful. And it uh, shows color, creativity, use of local products, pieces of glass, mirrors, beads, and so forth. The guy wrapped it up, and he assured me that when it got back to the States, it would be okay. I arrived in Kansas City, unwrapped it, and it came out in pieces. I was extremely disappointed, was ready to throw it away. And then I thought to myself, no, uh, maybe someday I can try to glue it back together again. And then I thought, this is a metaphor of Pakistan. Effort, creativity, hard work, local beauty, and so forth. But what's the result? The result is it's a broken nation. The uh, Sunnis hate the Shias. The Muslims hate the Christians and the Hindus and the Baha'i. The Taliban hates everybody. Uh, the government is corrupt. The international powers are jockeying for influence. It's a broken nation. I tell this to the imams when they ask me, what do I think of Pakistan? And I use this as a metaphor. And then I say, my presence here in Pakistan perhaps is kind of like this. I want to be a little piece of the glue that helps glue Pakistan back together again. They affirm me. They give me the high five. They appreciate my motivation. I'm there to bless the nations. Next, I want to share just one, one story out of this. Uh, the town of Shandinagar is, is the most unique community that I've seen there. It was a Salvation Army officer who uh, decided to go as a beggar into this community. He dressed like the Pakistanis. He went around begging to help get resources to serve the people there, led the entire community to Jesus Christ. Shantinagar now has 25,000 people, 14 churches, and no mosques. It is a Christian community. There are a number of these communities in Pakistan. It's right in the middle of the cotton fields. 
And so back in 1997, again, somebody found a defaced Koran in the middle of a field. And so they organized a spontaneous mob of 45,000 people that attacked this town, burned down a thousand homes, burned out all the churches, burned out the clinic, and so forth, and uh, terrorized them. Nobody was killed because the Christians all went running out of town. Four hours later, the government intervened and protected the citizens, but there were 80 or so people injured. Okay? Let me introduce you to Shantinagar. Next. This is the gate going into the town. You see the cross right there? Next. These are the uh, rice paddies and cotton fields all around. Next. As you go through the gate, you see in the distance there something very interesting. A 30-foot cross that they place right in the heart of the community as a witness to the faith of this city. Next. I've preached uh, in the Salvation Army Citadel. Next. Uh, this is a young man that was part of my class there. He took his motorcycle. They don't wear helmets there. He lost control, smashed his head in, was killed two hours after this photo. This is the last photo of him. 17 years old, wonderful Christian man. Next. I gave a certificate to his parents as a testimony. Next. These are the five older siblings, and they're showing me his ID card. Next. This is, uh, here I am in the Assembly of God Church, and I'm teaching a class there. Next. We act out, as I mentioned before, many of the stories of the Bible. Next. Here I am in the Salvation Army Church, about 500 in attendance. The women are on the right, the men are on the left. Next. The hardest thing for me is after these services, lines of people line up and they want private prayer with me. By that time, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, and they're coming with all kinds of burdens, and I hardly have the faith to know how to pray for them. Kind of ironic, I had a couple come forward, and they said, Pastor, would you please pray for us? We're getting so old, and we've got all kinds of pains in our body. I said, how old are you? 45. I said, I'm 70. Would you pray for me? <laughs> Another one came along and said, oh, I've got pains in my leg. Would you please pray for me? I said, well, you know, just last year, I fell under a motorcycle and I broke my leg in four places. Would you please pray for me? <laughs> a little boy comes forward. He says, I've got exams tomorrow. Would you please pray for me? Said, Go home, kid, and study. <laughs> but mothers who come with deformed children, how do you pray for them? You know? And the needs are so, so desperate. And this is the burden that I carry all the time, my friends. Hundreds of these people are on Facebook, and they're constantly probing me for prayer or to respond to their needs. And I can't. I can pray for them, but I cannot. I don't have the resource to help them in so many different ways. That's why I need you to pray with me, because I need a body of people to pray and so next, this is one of the deformed children that I just, I don't know how to pray for these kids. Next. 
Then we give out Sunday school literature to the children. Next. Here they are showing off their literature. Next. We, uh, I funded for the last four years Vacation Bible School, $600 to $800 each year for 600 kids. It's, it's a huge thing. They're, they're in this Vacation Bible School. They've got the tent over their heads, but the temperature is 110 degrees. And they stick with it. Next, giving out trophies for Bible memorization, giving an evangelistic sermon. Next. Here are some of the women, uh, Christian NGO, teaching them to do embroidery. Next. Here is the hospital staff. They don't have a doctor, but 50 babies are born in this particular clinic. Next. This is the cross that they were building three years ago when I first went there. Next. This is the cross now in the center of the town. Next. And then at the base of the cross, they've got this statement. On the 6th of February, 1997, Shanti and Tiba Colony had to face an unforgettable mishap. That's kind of an understatement. In which more than half the homes and all the churches were put to fire by the uncontrolled mob. However, by the grace of God, there was no responsible, uh, no casualty. And on top of that, residents of Shanty Niagara forgave all the responsible persons with a Christian concern. Would you do the same thing? If a Muslim attacked you, burned down your house, would you forgive? That's why I hang out in places like this. I find a brand of Christianity which is very profound. Next. One of my students gave me this. Love is forgiving because love is forgiving. That's part of your purposes here. If you really love, you forgive. Okay? Next. So tilling the ground, my question to you today is, where are you tilling it? The words of Dag Hammarskjöld, night is drawing nigh. I'm 70 years old. There are young people here who need to replace me and find your own purposes. The world is small. You've got opportunities that most of us have never had. Night is drawing nigh for all that has been thanks, for all that will be yes. Uh, last Sunday, Saturday morning, I talked to the, our new district superintendent of Pakistan. And when I was teaching there in the Assembly of God Church, three men came up to me afterwards. They said, we are so excited. I said, why? We are Nazarenes. We are Nazarenes. We don't have a Nazarene church there. But we are Nazarenes, and we are here to plant the church of the Nazarene in Shantinagar. Then I find out our district superintendent and all of his family is from Shantinagar. And so when I talked to him, he's also pastor in New York City, in our Pakistani church there. He said, Fletcher, half of all the residents in Shantinagar are my relatives. I have not been able to get any monies from Kansas City for Pakistan because we are blacklisted. There's just such animosity towards Pakistan. And they, nobody is there to tell the story. You're the first... American who has cared for Pakistan. 
I said to him, I'm going to be in two churches, last Sunday and this Sunday. I would love to raise five to $7,000 to be able to build, buy the property, and build the church in Shantinagar, this courageous community which has forgiven the Muslims. Uh, I talked to your pastor. He said, this is something probably that your NMI would like to talk about. But I leave that as my current burden for Pakistan because there's nobody else in the mission core of the Church of the Nazarene that has ever lived in Pakistan and nobody that I know of that has ministered in Pakistan in the same way that I have. You have? God bless you, lady. We've got to talk. But so, I leave that with you. My last slide. Is there a last slide? For the building of the Nazarene Church, he said five to $7,000. But your faith promise is what we're focusing on today. Please give. That is the... Uh, I was with an oil man last night, Jim. It is the oil that gets the engine going. You understand? And that's where we start. Afterwards, you can go ahead and buy a Jaguar, okay? For the time being, we just need oil to get the vehicle going. May God bless you. Thank you, Dr. Singh. If you're new to the Church of the Nazarene, uh, Really, in our early beginnings, world missions has been a part of our, just deep to our hearts. Uh, we, we started hundreds of years, hundred or so years ago, and really going around the, the world, seeing, sending missionaries, responding to the call of Jesus when he was with his disciples right before he went to heaven. He said, and the, the Holy Spirit is going to fill you, and you're going to receive power, and you're going to go around the world to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, spreading the gospel, making disciples. And that is our call. I love the phrase. It's probably used a lot uh, or heard a lot. Being a part of something bigger than yourself. And that's what we are part of. We're a part of a church that's not just here in Houston. Uh, no man is an island. No church is an island. And we're not about a building, but we are a part of believers that are around the globe right now. And Faith Promise Sunday is about, uh, one, we do this once a year, and it's a Sunday that we really focus on missions and how that we can give and pray and support missions. If you get a worship folder this morning in the back of it, it, it tells about where Faith Promise Giving goes. And it goes to support NMI missions uh, around the globe, 702 missionaries in 159 world areas. World Mission Radio Broadcast. We saw a, a video of that earlier. Seminaries, colleges, nurses training colleges, administrative costs to medical clinics and hospitals. To, locally, we support Cypress Assistance Ministries and Montrose Street Reach and with Crisis Care Kits. And we help out here at, with Celebrate Recovery in a partnership with Wilburn. And then we also have spontaneous spirit-filled opportunities like this opportunity we now have with, with Pakistan where we can give and we have money available to give to opportunities like that through NMI and also with work and witness trips. And then this year, we have an opportunity. It's a new opportunity for us. You heard a little bit about it a couple of weeks ago with Bev and David Cook. They used to be on staff here. She was our youth pastor for many years and a, a huge impact in the lives of students here. They've moved to Manhattan and they are starting a house church and inviting people to the gospel and to the, the Christian life through a house church there. And we're going to be supporting them as well. So when we give to Faith Promise, that's where money goes to. 
We have a huge chunk that goes to, to global ministry, and then we have a, a, a percentage that goes to local ministry as well. So how does this work? Uh, you've got these cards that are in your worship folder, and these are cards that are really just to encourage you and how you can give through the year. And I'll tell you this, uh, this is between you and the Lord. This is not a thing where you're ever going to get a letter from me or a phone call from anyone, but this is a time where we just take and say, Lord, you've spoken to us today. You've stirred, you stirred my heart today and help, helped us to see beyond our, our community and beyond our town. Lord, how do you want us to give in this next year? And we believe that the Lord's going to provide that. And he has done that in huge ways through our church in, in previous years. Our church, I don't know if you know this, has been a, just a massive giver for the last several years in, in huge ways. And it's through your generosity and through your faithfulness. And God will provide. And so this morning, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to go and find Melanie, and we're going to begin to chat with the Lord. And we're going to sing some songs. And when you're, you have that conversation with God and you want to uh, turn in a card, you can do that. We've got ushers around. If you don't have a card, just kind of wave your hand in the air and you can get that. We're going to sing a couple of songs. At the end of that, we'll announce how much uh, we've, we've pledged this year. But we know that the Lord's going to help us in this. Would you pray with me, God? You're good to us. Thank you so much for the word that we've heard this morning. Lord, we thank you for the stories that we've heard. We thank you for the work and the ministry done through Dr. Tink and through lives that have been changed uh, for the kingdom, Lord. Lord, we recognize that this earth is a huge place. And there are people that are in all ends of it that need you desperately, Lord. God, I pray that, uh, Lord, you would speak to our hearts now. God, I pray that you would lead God and direct us as we pledge and as we give. And Lord, we, we pray that every single dollar that is given, Lord, that will be used for the kingdom, that hearts would come to know you, Lord, as your, their Lord and, and Savior, Lord, that, that communities would be changed, that our community would be changed, that people uh, would hear your word, Lord, for the first time. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. <laughs> 